Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. Following, following the following journey into comics. Journey into comics. It's a journey into comics. It's a journey into comics. Journey into comics. Journey into comics. Network. 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 Production. Production. We interrupt the Journey into Comics Network feed for this late-breaking edition of Poor News, featuring Andrew Poor. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is Poor News, the show about news. News that we like, news that we despise, news that's all around just interesting if it doesn't just make you want to slam your head against the wall. I am your host, as always, Andrew Poor, and before I get into the news for today, I want to give a special shout-out to my podcast brother, uh, Dick Blaine Tyner of Podcastrophy, who got married over the weekend, so big shout-out to him. And in honor of him, I actually just had some Taco Bell, because that's something I always hear him talking about when he's recording podcast for you, when he did JIC, about getting Taco Bell afterwards, because it's just across the street, and I actually have a Taco Bell within walking distance, so I got a one of those Crunchwrap boxes with a Baja Blast, so definitely doing that in honor of you, Dick, so enjoy listening to this episode. And for those of you who haven't really listened to the show before, this show obviously covers all things news Except entertainment. Entertainment will air alternately with this show as poor entertainment, which is entertainment, news, all that stuff that you find entertaining. Sports, music, movies, TV, all of that fun stuff. So, But I, this is kind of the news I curated for this week. And kind of jumping right in, this is something that I found over the weekend that I was like, I need to talk about this because this is kind of interesting. So this is an article from Newsweek, and that is Donald Trump to speak at a hate group's annual event, a first for a sitting president. So, President Donald Trump will be the first sitting president to address the Family Research Council's Values Voter Summit with the Southern Poverty Law Center, described as a rogues gallery of the radical right. Trump will be the keynote speaker at Friday's event, which will be also be attended by his former strategist, strategist Steve Bannon. Other speakers include the founder of anti-Islam group ACT for America and former Trump strategist Sebastian Gorka. The Anti-LGBTQ Family Research Council, labeled as a hate group by the SPLC, has hosted its annual summit since its inception in 2006. Values voters have waited eight years for a leader who puts America's mission first and respects the values that made America into a great nation, the council's president, Tony Perkins, said in a statement reported by The Hill. Values voters are coming to our nation's capital, thankful to hear from a president who is fulfilling the promise that he campaigned on. So the early days of the campaign, President Trump allied himself with values voters promised to put an end to the eight years of relentless assault on the First Amendment. No other thing has ever taken the decision to address the summit, although Trump has spoken before the conference on three previous occasions, even during his presidential election campaign. Speaking of the president's decision to attend this year's 12th annual event, SPLC President Richard Cohen told The Independent, By appearing at the Values Voter Summit, President Trump is lending the legitimacy of his office to a hate group that relentlessly demonizes LGBTQ people and works to deny them on their equal rights. His appearance puts the lie to his campaign, promises to be a friend to the LGBTQ community, bigotry is not an American value, and our president should speak out against it, he added. 
Trump's attack on the LGBTQ community have not gone unnoticed, with the president rescinding Obama year protection for transgender students that allow them to use the bathroom that matches their gender they identify with. Trump also just a ban on transgender troops in the military and failed to recognize Pride Month or National Coming Out Day, unlike his predecessor. The group organized the summit has frequently commented on homosexuality. Family Research Council believes that homosexuality con- or homosexual conduct is harmful to the person who engaged to it and society at large and can never be affirmed. It is by definition unnatural and as such associated with negative physical and psychological health effects. It's not clear what tr- topic Trump will address during his speech, but the group's overwhelmingly negative attitude towards the LGBTQ community is prompting questions about whether a president should be attending a day of glorified hate speech. So that's definitely interesting. The first time for a sitting president, a president who has a picture that shows him holding up a rainbow flag that says LGBT for Trump. And to go from that to get elected to doing all these kind of behind the scenes things, kind of slowly minimizing those rights and now to speak at a hate group that thinks basically what they're doing is an abomination. And it's not. It's something that you just need to accept or ignore, or just, if you don't like it, just don't look into it. Just move on. What they do does no way devalue what you do. So just don't worry about it. So this will be very interesting, and I'm really curious to see what he actually does talk about. He's got to walk a fine line with the midterm election. You can't say anything too risque or too out there that Republicans that are campaigning that want to get reelected or want to get elected at all don't have to backdoor against them because if they do retain any control in the House and Senate after November, they really need Trump as an ally. So they can't go be like, I disagree with what he said because then coming next year when they need something, he'll be like, oh, but you said this to me then. And so it's a lot of quid pro quo. So. Yeah, we'll have to see how this kind of shakes out. I'm definitely going to figure out when this actually happens, but yeah, not a big fan of this. And this is involving something that happened actually earlier today, and that is that President Trump finally visited Florida after Hurricane Michael has now well passed. And this is uh, CNN's their live coverage, so I'm going to kind of backtrack it to the earlier day and kind of run through what happened, and we'll kind of go from there. So, these are kind of timestamps so let's see uh this at the time of recording this was so this was earlier this morning uh president trump and first lady melania have arrived at elgin air force base in okaloosa county in the florida panhandle for the governor rick spot and female administrator brock long were among the people to greet the trumps um later that morning he uh president trump touted the federal state and local response turkey and hailed the effects of florida governor rick scott shortly after their arriving for the to tour hurricane damage Trump said officials stepped up and followed right behind Hurricane Michael. Jobs they've done in Florida have been incredible. Likewise, in Georgia, Trump told the pool reporters. Trump added that thousands of electricians are working on getting the power back on, but pointed out that the bigger problem is many homes don't exist anymore. I saw the pictures. He is not wrong. And actually, uh, I know some of uh, electricians and like cophead people from up in this area, where I am in the Chicagoland area, have actually gone down there to assist, so definitely good for them. Uh... Earlier, later in that, uh, in the morning, uh, yesterday, Monday, as you're listening to this, in Florida, the seaside town of Mexico Beach was virtually wiped away at Hurricane Michael. Now, days after the storm hit, uh, chiefs are sitting precariously through heavy rubble in search of about 30 to 35 people, the city's police chief said. Rescuers have been using dogs as they comb through rubble piles and mangled structures 
one more time looking for survivors. About 200 of the town's 1,200 residents had said they planned to ride out the storm, but many fled at the last minute when Michael quickly gained strength. Uh, every school in uh, this Florida camp, uh, county was damaged. The future thousand students remain unclear in the wake of Hurricane Michael, especially those in Bay County where schools are closed till further notice. It's not going to be a normal school year. There's going nothing normal about what, where we are right now. For the majority of the 26,000 students is placed in many schools deemed not safe because of the damage of are discussing alternative ways to get students back to the classroom or provide psychological aid for them. I would say every single school in Bay County has some type of damage, some more extensive than others. So it'll probably take a week or months to get online, some it'll take years. So that's very intense. <clears throat> um, later that same morning, President Trump and Frisley Melania Trump began their visit to Florida with an aerial tour from Marine One over areas affected by Hurricane Michael. Michael State parts of Florida Panhandle and the seaside town of Mexico Beach was virtually wiped away. The Trumps are back to meet with officials and first responders in Florida, Georgia today. Uh, Trump tours devastated neighborhood. I've seen pictures, but it's hard to believe. Uh, President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump just walked through the neighborhood in Lynn Haven, Florida, to see the damage left behind by Hurricane Michael. Hard to believe I've seen pictures, but it's hard to believe when you're above it in a plane and see the total devastation. You see no houses left, not even the pads are left. It's incredible. Incredible is a interesting word choice. Uh, Trump praised female local government and first responders for their incredible work. To see this personally, it's very tough, very, very tough. Total devastation, the president added. Trouble said he spoke with a resident who rode up the storm and told him that he's never been so scared in his life. This isn't the first time Trump said that something's uh, very tough. I remember when I, on the poor, poor last year, I believe it was, uh, when Trump had to call victims or the parents of soldiers lost, he found that tough and really didn't like doing it. I'm like, well, that's just kind of comes with the job, but the president's job isn't easy. It's not all praise and speeches and all that. It's... You got to be the commander in chief sometimes. Um, then you have pictures of Trump handing out Kirkland brand bottled water. So President Trump handed bottled water to stranded residents of Lynn Haven, Florida, Monday while Trump against administration's response efforts during Hurricane Michael. We're doing more than has probably ever been done. He said they would say that 50 years ago there was one that had this kind of powder. 50 years, he said, it's a long time. Yeah, just ask the people in Puerto Rico. Uh, later that day, Trump visited the. Uh, Red Cross Center in Georgia. After spending time in Florida, President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump traveled to Georgia to continue surveying the damage from Hurricane Michael. Monday afternoon, the President and First Lady visited a Red Cross Center in Warner Robins, Georgia. They spoke with state and local officials. While the Sunshine State suffered the brunt of Michael's punishing winds, states across the southeast, including Georgia, also felt the effects of the storm. Southern Georgia experienced hurricane-strength winds last Wednesday, downing numerous trees and causing property damage and power outages. State officials said they received reports of damage to the states, pecan, cotton, vegetable, and peanut crops. CNN meteorologist Brandon Miller pointed out that Michael was the first Category 3 hurricane to track into the state of Georgia since 1898. And I guess the last thing was that um, President Trump met with a group of pecan, cotton, and soybean farmers at Charlie Stewart Farms, a soybean farm in Macon, Georgia, discussed the impacts of Hurricane Michael. He spoke with the group and asked how, he, how each farmer's property was hit by the hurricane and how long it will take their crops and finances to recover. Several conversations assured the farmers that his administration was working with local and state officials to provide support and relief. We're working on it, you know that, right? He said at one point, you'll be fine. It's too bad what happened to you guys, he said to the group towards the end of the visit. So, yeah, that's just, I don't know. He's trying to get the farm vote. So we'll see what actually comes of this. And actually, uh, speaking of Hurricane Michael, Michael's destruction exposes weaker building codes in Florida's panhandle. 
We are vulnerable as any other part of the state, said a Florida, former Florida lawmaker after the Category 4 hurricane hit last week. Tallahassee, Florida, unlike in South Florida, homes in the state's panhandle did not have tighter building codes. It was once argued that the trees would help save Florida's panhandle from the fury of hurricanes as the acres of forest in the region would provide a natural variable to the savage winds that accompany the deadly storm. It's for the reason that tighter building codes mandatory in places such as South Florida were not put in place for most of the region until just 11 years ago. It may be a painful lesson for area residents now that Hurricane Michael has ravaged the region, leaving the same damage from the coast inland all the way to the Georgia border. We're learning painful that we shouldn't be doing those kinds of exemptions, said Don Brown, the former legislator from the Panhandle, now sits on the Florida Building Commission. Sorry, it moved. We were vulnerable as any other part of the state. There was this whole notion that trees were going to help us take the wind out of the storm. Those trees became projectiles and flying objects. Yikes. Uh, Hurricanes Andrew... A generation ago, raised Florida's most populated area with the winds up to 165 miles per hour, damaging or blowing apart over 125,000 homes and obliterating almost all mobile homes in its path. The acres of flattened homes showed how contractor cut corners amid the patchwork of codes Florida had at the time. For example, flimsy particle board was used under roofs instead of sturdier plywood, and staples were used instead of roofing nails. Since 2001, structures statewide must be built to withstand winds of 111 miles per hour and and up, the Miami area is considered a high-velocity hurricane zone, which requires higher standards, requiring many structures to withstand hurricane winds in excess of 170. Though Michael was packing winds as high as 155, any boost in the level of safety requirements for builders helped a home avoid disintegrating in a hurricane. Tom Lee, a home builder and legislator, says past hurricanes have shown time and time again that stricter codes help. He said during past hurricanes, he looked at the damage by plane and could tell if a home was built before the new code. The structural interior of our housing stock is leaps and bounds beyond what it was. The goes all for shatterproof windows, fortified roofs, and reinforced concrete pillars, among other specifications. But it wasn't until 2007 that homes built in the panhandle of more than one mile from shore were required to follow the higher standards. And Hurricane Michael pummeled the region with devastating winds from the sea all the way into Georgia, destroying buildings more than 70 miles from the shoreline. Governor Rick Scott said it may be time for Florida to boost its standards since during the Toughest in the nation even further. After every event, you go back and look at what you can do better. After Andrew, the codes change dramatically in our state. Every time something like this happens, you have to say to yourself, is there something we can do better? Mexico Beach, the Gulf City. The Gulf Coast town destroyed by Michael lacked a lot of new or retrofitted construction, said Craig Fugit, the former director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency and a former emergency management chief for the state of Florida. The small seaside community had a lot of older mobile homes and lower... And low-income year-round residents working in the commercial fishing and service industries. Quite idyllic, uh, idyllic when I call old Florida Fugate said this is not a bunch of high-rises or brand new developments. So yeah, it looks like we'll hopefully see a lot of code improvements post-Michael uh, that prevent something like the devastation we saw from Hurricane Michael happen again. Now jumping into the political sphere, uh, Elizabeth Warren was in the news uh, today because she released her DNA test results and dares Trump to make good on his $1 million bet. So Senator Elizabeth Warren has faced many, has questioned for years about her claim she was native, uh, she has Native American ancestry. Well, famously, President Trump, uh, who nicknamed her Pocahontas and dared her in July to take a DNA test. Warren did. Monday, she released a DNA analysis of her gene showing she does have Native American ancestry. Analysis performed by Stanford University professor Carlos Bustamante includes that the vast majority of the senator's ancestry is European, but the results strongly suggest Native American heritage six to ten generations ago. Warren seen first released results to the Boston Globe. 
Warren's up for re-election in Massachusetts in November and is expected to win, but she's widely rumored to have set her sights on 2020. She said that after midterm, she will take a hard look at running for president. Along with the DNA results, Warren's campaign's fact squad released data information about her heritage, including a Globe investigation from September that found that her ethnicity wasn't a factor in her rise in the legal academic ranks. I also a video of Warren and her family in Oklahoma discussing her family's history. The video features clips of Trump, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, and other making fun of Warren's heritage claims, which the DNA tests have now proven to likely be true. The president likely likes to call my mom a liar. What do the facts say? Warren asked Bustamante, who did the DNA analysis in the video. The facts are this, you absolutely have Native American ancestry in your pedigree, he replies. President Trump had called Warren Pocahontas for a month in a rally over the summer. He said he would give $1 million to charity if she takes a DNA test. Warren tweeted a reminder of the president's promise and asked him to send a check to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Trump spoke to reporters on Monday and denied saying he would make the donation. I didn't say that. You better read it again, he said. There's video evidence of him making the pledge. The White House didn't return a request for comment on Trump's reaction. How we got here in the first place. That a sitting U.S. senator and potential presidential candidate would spend so much time and energy on proving she is somewhere between 132nd and 1-1024th Native American at first glance seems a bit silly. You think her sweeping policy proposals or career history as a successful law professor would be more important. But questions about her heritage have dogged Warren since her 2012 Senate campaign. The Globe explains when Republican operatives sound stories in the Harvard Crimson referring to Warren as Native American in order to demonstrate the law school's faculty diversity, Warren had her ethnicity changed on official documents from white to Native American at the University of Pennsylvania and at Harvard University Law Schools when she taught there in the 1980s and 90s. As Vox's Dylan Matthews explained in February, Warren has consistently said that her mother is part Cherokee even though Warren herself isn't an enrolled member of the three federally registered Cherokee tribes. Her ancestors don't appear on the Dawes Rolls, an official list of members of the Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Chickasha, and Seminole tribes put together in the early 20th century. The Globes reviewed Warren's hiring records in a broad investigation that included more than 100 interviews and found no evidence that her heritage played a part in her rise in legal academia. She was viewed as a white female applicant, and not until she had been teaching at Penn for two years did she let the university change her designation to Native American. The law schools were happy to have her help boost their diversity numbers. My family is my family, but my background played no role in me getting hired anywhere. Warren told the Globe for the investigation of story published in September. She said she decided to identify herself as Native American as more of the matriarchs in her family began to die, and she worried that their lore ancestry might be lost. Warren has not been particularly fast to react to questions about her heritage. She admitted as much in an interview with CNN in September. I was a first-time candidate back in 2012 and frankly just didn't even have this basic information. So got it all together, handed over the past, and said, there it is. What does this have to do with the 2020 and Trump? It's been widely speculated for quite some time that Warren is gearing up for potential 2021 for presidency, and the senator isn't exactly doing a lot to tamp down the buzz. Last month, she said she would take a look at running for the White House after November. The Washington Post reported over the weekend that Warren has built a sort of shadow war room designed to elect Democrats during the midterms that will further position her for presidential bid. Warren has unveiled headline-grabbing policy proposals, including one to overhaul American capitalism, another to fight corruption. In August, she released 10 years of her tax returns. This is the kind of public servant I want to be, transparent, Warren told The Globe last month. A lot of our maneuvers appear to be an effort to position herself as a sort of antithesis to Trump. Antithesis, sorry. He hasn't released his tax returns, he's held on to his family business despite calls to divest, and his administration under a constant cloud of corruption. He's signed a sweeping tax bill that disproportionately benefits the wealthy and corporations, and he's constantly playing on Americans' prejudices and fears about race. 
In a speech earlier this year to the National Congress of American Indians, Warren addressed Trump's attack on her, but also used the case to discuss the ways the American government has failed and harmed American Indians. Our country's disrespect of Native people didn't start with President Trump. It started long before President Washington ever took office. But now we have a president who can't make it through a ceremony honoring Native American war heroes without reducing Native history, Native culture, Native people to the butt of a joke. Joke, I guess, is supposed to be on me. So, it looks like she's making all the moves to become a serious contender in 2020. I don't know how I feel about that personally. Not really the biggest fan of Elizabeth Warren. I just... It's nothing against her policies or her positions. I just don't think we need another older presidential candidate. In 2016, we saw two older candidates run. And there's always the question of when you have an older candidate about their health, their future, and if elected, how their health... Because commonly, as a president, you age due to the amount of stress and strain you're under for that four to eight years. You can see the pictures of presidents on inauguration day versus their last day in office. And you can see the dramatic change that doesn't usually take place over eight years. So if you elect someone who's like in their seventies, it's kind of crazy. Like you saw how Reagan was towards the end of his presidential career. And it's just, I don't know. I think we need to elect presidents in their fifties. Like, I don't know that's unreasonable, but I don't know. I just think trying to prop yourself up in a going to already be a hard enough 2020 campaign, you're just going to create the same situation we had in 2016. So, I don't know. We'll see what she actually does. But I guess if it's the Democrats only going to prop up her and Biden, I don't know really who to vote for on the Democratic side or even on the Republican side if Trump becomes the sole nominee again or if he makes it 2020 or if he has a challenger, like if Pence decides to break rank and try and run against him. I don't know. I just am sick of old presidents. I know this is our only old president right now of in recent memory, but when you go from an outgoing president who's much younger than the incoming president, it's kind of weird. So we'll see how the rest of this shakes out. And it wouldn't be Trump news if Trump didn't do a pretty interesting thing. And Trump went on 60 Minutes. And it caught... Uh, it's kind of interesting. It's from the Washington Post. I have the Washington Post and a Fox News article, and I'm going to kind of go between the two so you can kind of see how... They framed it all differently. So Trump's 60 Minutes interview causes the Fox and Friends host monocles to pop out. There's an important, often overlooked bit of context that, to President Trump's interview with 60 Minutes that aired Sunday night. The interview with Leslie Stahl, a veteran of such exchanges who had first interviewed Trump and his family soon after he won election. Earlier this year, Stahl revealed a conversation he had with event candidate shortly before the interview in which he told her that he constantly railed against the fake news, discredit you all, and demean you all, so when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. Stahl then was prepared to allow someone else to undercut Trump's untrue statements, Trump himself. It's been a while since Trump's rhetoric has been challenged in any significant way in a television interview. On most of the occasions in which he has granted interviews lately, they've been over the phone or with sympathetic, if not openly supportive, interviewers from Fox News Channel. The sit-down with Stahl was neither one of those things, both of which muffle in some way the ability of Trump to hold accountable for false for saying false things. Consider this exchange between Stahl and Trump on North Korea. What about North Korea talking about a account- well, I consider it a, fa- a so far great achievement. Look, we, let's stall. You say so far. Trump, it's always so far till everything's done. I, you know, deals are deals, okay? Whether it's a real estate deal or a retail deal, it doesn't matter. But I will say this. The day before I came in, we were going to war with North Korea. I sat with President Obama. We were going to war, Stahl asked uh, Trump, and we were going to. I think it's going to end up in 
I think it was going to end up in war, and my impression is, and even in my first few months, I mean, the rhetoric was a tough one as it could possibly get. Doesn't get any tougher than that. Nobody's ever heard rhetoric that tough. It's really hard to, like, when you read something he said, like, verbatim, it's really hard to actually get your brain to actually say all those words right. Um, Now, compare that to what Trump said in an interview conducted late last week with Time Magazine from Air Force One by phone. Look what I've done with North Korea, he said. When I came in, the day before I came in, if you look... We're going to work with Korea. President Obama said it was by far his biggest problem. Of course, he gave him a lot of problems with a lot of things, including Iran. Look at Iran. The war claim is important. Trump is hyping the importance of his efforts with North Korea by claiming that he averted a very serious alternative. But Stalin interjects that's not true, and Trump backs off his claim. I think it was going to end up in war. That's a significant, if subtle, difference. There's a significant, if subtle, difference. Phone interviews were a staple of Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. It may not be immediately obvious, but phone interviews give Trump a distinct advantage in these exchanges. It's harder to get a word in with someone over the phone than in person when you can telegraph your interest in speaking if not actually interrupt in a way that can't be ignored. Stahl sitting in a room with Trump was able to challenge him in a way that someone over the phone could not. As in the first exchange above, I consider it so far a great achievement, Trump said. Stahl recognized the importance of that qualifier, gave Trump's rhetoric on the subject, Stops to point that out, and Trump is then forced to offer a bit more context, a qualifier that's often absent from his commentary about the success of North Korean summit. The change between Fall and Trump was littered with similar interactions, and unsurprisingly, that was somewhat shocking to the team that his go-to for interviews, the hosts of Fox and Friends. It started with a video of the hurricane that devastated parts of the Panhandle of Florida, and the first question, and it wasn't about federal response, it wasn't about emergency preparedness, host Steve Ducey said, clearly the guest, she asked him about global climate change. Those went back and forth a bit and then showed a segment of the interview. So if you watch the full interview, you see she does interrupt him a lot, host Ainsley Earnhardt said. And people, many Republicans thought it was disrespectful and obnoxious. Many people thought it made him look better because he did answer everything correctly. But she gave a tough interview. And when you're a journalist, you want to ask tough, fair questions. Many people had a problem, though, with the fact that she was interrupting him a good bit. When Earnhardt sat down with Trump for an interview right after his campaign chairman was convicted of eight federal crimes and his personal attorney pleaded guilt to date, more in planning the president, her first question were, how is our country's first lady doing and how are your children? She later asked of the attorney about Cohen, why is he doing this? Those Brian Kilmeade went back to the first subject. She really believes in global warming and that's fine, A man and man's role in climate change and that's okay. But I don't think you should bring your point of view she was trying to win over the president with her point of view. There's no serious debate among climate scientists about the role of humans in climate change. People burn fossil fuels, releasing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that traps heat, which leads to warmer air and higher ocean temperatures, the former of which helps capture moisture and the later of which helps rapidly power hurricanes. The question was sensible in the context given Trump's unique position to potentially address the climate change problem. His answer to Stahl was a hand wave, and now familiar, the climate hell has always been changing rhetoric that is a go-to response from those who want to acknowledge that the Weather is weird, but deny that humans are responsible. It's sort of Brett Kavanaugh-esque. I believe something bad is happening, but it's not my fault. The argument itself is like saying the weather always changes from colder to warmer in the late spring, so that's probably why the air temperature in Manchester Township, New Jersey, increased near the airship Hindenburg on May 6, 1937. Yes, the climate changes over the long term, but far more slowly than we're expecting, than we're experiencing now. His response on the subject was not why anyone inside your heart might say counted as answering everything correctly. Could be then continue to say that Trump could at least handle being interrupted without being offended, unlike former President Barack Obama, who would look offended when Fox News' Brett Bayer would interrupt him because Obama tended to go on and on and on with every answer. 
bear until the president Republicans must have thought that was disrespectful and obnoxious. There's little question that Trump will continue to be a tr- to be Trump, no matter how thoroughly he's pressed on his inaccuracies and lies. CNN's Jake Tapper addressed last week's USA Today op-ed about Medicare for All that bore Trump's byline, saying that his was only an hour-long show we can't get into every lie. That's part of the Trump strategy, saying so many untrue things so often that it overwhelms the ability to identify each falsehood. And then there's a side benefit, akin to the one Trump offered Saul in 2016. The media pressing Trump on his falsehoods makes it seem as though he's being unfairly targeted, which of course he's not. Unless you're a Fox and Friends host, apparently, Earhart tweeted the above exchange from her show about the Trump interview to her 335,000 Twitter followers on Monday morning. President Trump peppered endlessly with interview with questions in an interview with 60 Minutes, she wrote. Well, yes, it just happens in an interview, particularly an interview with a president who's reluctant to sit down with outlets that might press him on his inaccuracies. The response on Twitter was what you might expect. Earhart later deleted the tweet. That When the tweet says, um, someone responded... The horror questions in an interview? How outrageous. And then she later deleted it. So that's always fun. So that was the Washington Post discussion of the interview. And then here is uh, Fox News's report of the same thing. President Trump, in contentious 60 Minutes interview, defends relationships with Putin and Kim. Mind stall, I'm president. President Trump covered a lot of ground, but didn't give any contentious 60 Minutes didn't give any in a contention 60 Minutes interview that aired Sunday night railing against the dishonest media defending his relationships with Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, expressing mistrust and unaimed aides and pointing out to Legisol that I'm president and you're not. That's a kind of a weird statement. Uh, now, veterans stalled to pin Trump down with a pledge not to fire special counsel Robert Mueller, who is in the second year of an investigation to alleged collusion between Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and Russia. I don't pledge anything, Trump said, but I'll tell you I have no intention of doing that. I think it's a very unfair investigation because there was no collusion of any kind. I don't want to pledge, she added. Why should I pledge to you? If I pledge, I'll pledge. I don't have to pledge to you, but I have. I have no intention of doing that. There were several similarly testy exchanges, including one with Trump's relationship with Putin, his Russia counterpart with whom he was criticized for being friendly to during a meeting in Helsinki earlier this year. Saul noted that Moscow was suspected in multiple assassinations of critics. Trump denied that Putin could be behind such things, but took a... Mind our own business approach. Of course they shouldn't do it, Trump said, but it's not our country. Trump acknowledged that Russia likely meddled in the election, but dismissed Moscow's actual influence in the presidential race against Democratic opponent Hillary Clinton. They meddled, he said, but I think China meddled too, and I think, frankly, China is a bigger problem. Okay. Stalls suppressed Trump about his overture to Kim, the third-generation dictator of North Korea. When she asked him how he could embrace the brutal dictator, Trump asserted that his brand of diplomacy had helped Defang a threat to the U.S. Trump met with Kim in Singapore in June, and the leaders have tentative plans for another session, according to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I get along with him really well, Trump said of Kim. I have good energy with him. I have a good chemistry with him. Look at these horrible threats that were made. No more threats. No more threats. The interview followed an ABC News exclusive with First Lady Melania Trump, in which she said she has warned her husband that he cannot trust some of the key people around him. Asked about it, Trump agreed with his wife. Asked whether he has learned and what... He was most surprised by since becoming President Trump said he never held political office before and in the White House bemoaned the political atmosphere in Washington. So I was just to say the toughest people are Manhattan real estate guys and blah blah. Now I say they're babies, Trump said. Though he didn't specify who he didn't trust, the president has a surprising word for Defense Secretary James Mattis, who he said was sort of a Democrat and hinted may not be on the job much longer. He may leave, Trump said of Mattis. I mean at some point everybody leaves. Everybody, people leave, that's Washington. When pressed about Mattis, Trump denied that the legendary general had needed to educate the president about NATO's role when Trump was seeking greater contributions from members' nations. 
No, it's not true, Trump said. Frankly, I like General Mattis, but I think I know more about it than he does. That's a bold statement. Uh, Trump lamented what he considers his unfair treatment by the media, touching off a sharp exchange. I never knew how dishonest the media was, and I really meant it. I really mean it, Trump said. I'm not saying that as a soundbite. I never knew how dishonest. So I thought to stop the attack, saying, I'm going to change the subject again, but Trump changed on and directed his criticism at his interviewer. Well, no, even the way you asked me a question, like, about family separation of illegal immigration at the border, when I say Obama did it, you don't want to talk about it. I disagree, but I don't want to have that fight with you, Stahl said. Leslie, it's okay, Trump replied. In the meantime, I'm president, you're not. Like, yeah, we get it, you're the president, but still, just have an interview. You don't have to attack the person. I don't know, that just seems... It's too combative in an interview. It just doesn't need to be. You can see how, yes, all news organizations are biased and how in the reporting, Fox News leans one way and CNN or Washington Post leans the other. It's just kind of how the news, they're playing to their audience. So you can obviously see, I haven't watched the interview personally. I'd been too busy this weekend. I had my high school reunion, so I was in other things over that time. So I didn't really get the chance to listen to it, but I kind of read through this and it's, Seems like it was a very interesting interview, so... But moving right along, this one I thought was kind of interesting, and this is from thinkprogress.org. Trump says it doesn't matter how Christine Blasey Ford was treated because we won. And this was also during the 6 Minutes interview. So during 6 Minutes interview that aired Sunday, President Trump was asked if he thought it was respectful to mockingly mimic sexual assault survivor Dr. Christine Blasey Ford at one of his political rallies, prompting thousands of people to boo her. Trump responded by saying he doesn't matter because the man she accused of assaulting her, Brett Kavanaugh, was ultimately confirmed to the Supreme Court. Had I not made the speech, we would not have won, Trump said, referring to an October 2nd speech in which he mocked Blaisley Ford for not being able to remember details surrounding the night in the summer of 1982 when she claimed Kavanaugh assaulted her at a high school party while one of his friends looked on. President Vizigord got before the Senate was asked, what's the worst moment, she said. When the two boys laughed at me, interviewer Leslie Stahl pointed out to Trump, prompted him to shrug, and then I watched... You mimic her and thousands of people were laughing at her. I will tell you this. The way now Justice Kavanaugh was treated has become a big factor in the midterms, Trump replied. I've seen what's going on with the polls. I think she was treated with great respect, I'll be honest, he had. There are those who think she shouldn't have been. Do you think you treated her with great respect, Stahl asked. I think so, yeah, I do, Trump replied. But you seem to be saying that she lied, said Stahl. I'm not going to get into it because we won. She said, it doesn't matter, we won. It wasn't the only moment during the interview when Trump revealed he's not only worried about the morality of his actions. Trump also brushed aside concerns that he's palling around with Kim Jong-un as Kim presides over a regime that runs gulags and starts his own people saying, look, look, I get along with him, okay? Let it be whatever it is. I get along with him really well. I have good energy with him. I have good chemistry, like I said in the other article. Trump also read that he thinks curtailing arms sales to Saudi Arabia in light of the Saudi regime's apparent responsibility for murdering a dissident journalist would be a bridge too far saying, I don't want to hurt jobs. So, I don't think it's really a we won situation regarding getting Kavanaugh's confirmation through at the sake of Christine Blasey Ford. So, saying it doesn't matter what we won is just kind of like, doesn't matter what we do as long as we get our way in the end. So, yeah, and I don't think also that his, his rally speech had anything to do with how it was going to turn out. So, I don't know. I just think it's kind of crazy. And getting out, uh, before I guess before I get out of Trump news, I have one last thing to talk about there before I move on. And that was something that came out late in the day, and that is that federal judge rules in favor of Trump in Stormy Daniels' defamation lawsuit. A federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit against President Trump by adult film actress Stormy Daniels, who claims the president 
had defamed her earlier this year on Twitter. The lawsuit was filed for a tweet Trump sent in April suggesting Daniels was lying about being threatened in 2011 not to go public with the story of an alleged sexual assault encounter with Trump. A uh, sketch years later about a non-existent man, a total con job playing the fake news media for fools, but they know what the president tweeted. Daniels, whose really name is Stephanie Clifford, said she had a sexual encounter with Trump in 2006. Trump has denied that ever happened, but he did finally admit, after first denying it, to reimbursing his lawyer, Michael Cohen, for a $130,000 payment made to Daniel on the eve of the 2016 election. This ruling does not pertain to legal action against Daniels, has pursued over a non-disclosure agreement she entered into about the alleged sexual encounter. In the ruling, U.S. District Judge James Otero said in the tweet, The tweet constitutes rhetorical hyperbole normally associated with the politics and public discourse in the United States that is protected by the First Amendment. Mr. Trump's tweet displays an incredulous tone suggesting that the content of his tweet was no was not meant to be understood as a literal statement about the plaintiff. The ruling states also calls the lawsuit a fishing expedition and finds that Daniels had failed to show that Trump acted with actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth. The judge also ruled the president is entitled to reasonable, to reasonable attorney fees. Daniels' lawyer, Mike Lavinite, has pledged to appeal and notes that other claims against Trump and Cohen proceed unaffected. Trump's contrary claims are deceptive as his claims about the inauguration attendance, Avenatti tweeted Monday night. Trump's attorney, Charles Harder, encountered, encountered in a statement that no amount of spin or commentary by Stormy Daniels or her lawyer, Mr. Avenatti, can truthfully characterize today's ruling in any way other than the victory for President Trump and total defeat for Stormy Daniels. So that's just more fun news there, and we'll see how the other lawsuits go on. And that is it for Trump news for this episode of poor news but one thing we're going to talk about here is something i saw also was kind of interesting involving an interview and that regards a former president and that was bill clinton and his affair with monica Lewinsky. and this is during an interview with uh former president former presidential candidate and secretary of state hillary clinton so hillary clinton had uh has defended her husband, Bill Clinton, over his affair with Monica Lewinsky by directly contradicting Lewinsky's characterization of what happened. Back in March, Lewinsky called the affair between her and then a 22-year-old White House intern and the then-president a gross abuse of power. In an interview that aired Sunday, Clifton said, or Clinton, sorry, not Clifton, Clinton said that the affair did not represent an abuse of power. Bill Clinton has defended her husband, Bill Clinton, over his affair with Monica Lewinsky by directly contradicting Lewinsky's characterization of what happened. In 1995, when Lewinsky was a 20-year-old White House intern, she had multiple sexual encounters with the then-president, which he later lied under oath about. After the affair became public, Lewinsky was targeted by pundits belonging to both parties and reportedly feeling bullied to the point of feeling suicidal. Back in March, a few months into the Me Too movement of women coming forward with allegations of sexual misconduct, mostly against powerful men, Lewinsky wrote that she had been moved to tears and deeply empathized with the accusers. What time started between Bill Clinton and myself was not a sexual assault, although... We now recognize this as a constituted gross abuse of power, she wrote in Vanity Fair. But during an interview on CBS Sunday morning, the former first lady gave a different version of events. In retrospect, do you believe do you think Bill should have resigned in the wake of the Monica Lewinsky scandal? The CBS correspondent Tony Dacopul Dacupul asked her. Absolutely not, Clinton said. It wasn't an abuse of power. Uh it wasn't an abuse of power, Dokal continued. No, no, Clinton said. Clinton then redirected the conversation toward presidential Donald Trump and the numerous accusations of sexual misconduct and assault against him. Lewinsky was an adult, Clinton said, continuing, but let me ask you this. Where is the investigation of the current incumbent against whom numerous allegations have been made? So it seems like a misdirect and that even this many years after what's happened, Hillary Clinton's having none of this, whether it's true or not. And it's clearly true, and I do think it is an abuse of power and that 
into the Me Too movement that we're living in, even if you're just, even if you ask, you're still in a position where someone doesn't feel like they can say no, so they'll say yes. Which, in your mind, if you're on the, if you're the one in power, means everything's good. But on their end, they're like, if I say no, you only asked me, I could lose my job. I could lose. That's definitely putting someone in a position. We saw it with Louis C.K. Even though we asked women for whatever hand job, whatever, like he was putting them in position because he was the person in power. And regardless of how you think you are, that's definitely an abuse of power. Especially when you're president, when you are probably the highest power in the United States. So, yeah, I think Hillary Clinton is wrong in this case. So, I think that's a good way to end it for this week's Poor News episode. This is episode 5, which is exciting. And I definitely have some plans for episode 6. It was supposed to happen on 5, but you know how schedules are when we're all 20-somethings trying to get our lives together. We're 30-somethings. It's all... Everyone's lives are busy, and sometimes scheduling doesn't come together the way you hope, but it is what it is, and that is poor news for this week. I am Andrew Poor. You guys have a great week, and remember, just keep seeking out the news and seek out the truth, and don't settle for one version of events. Find yours. Thanks.